Amen. Thanks, Patrick, for leading us this morning. And good morning, everybody. As we're getting started, uh, Chris wanted me to make a quick kind of hot touch point on that webinar. He wasn't sure if he said 6 or 6.30 uh, for the Tuesday time frame. So it's going to be Tuesday at 6.30. So we got that clear. Um, with those things out of the way, we're going to jump kind of right into our text this morning and into our message. Um, this, this, I titled this sermon, uh, A King with a Dream, but this isn't a, a reference to Martin Luther King Jr. and his famous speech. Rather, this, this one predates that one by about 2,500 years, and it deals with King Nebuchadnezzar. And, uh, and again, we're going to run into him. We were introduced to him over the past three weeks, and we're going to run into him again, this time troubled by a dream, uh, a dream that takes root and uh, and him to the very core. I've talked about this before, uh, even from the pulpit, of sharing the fact that I just don't really relate to dreams. Uh, I'm one of the ones that I'm sure I dream like everybody else dreams, but uh, I don't typically remember my dreams. Uh, they just, I wake up and I don't know that they happened. Uh, my wife, however, on the other hand, uh, she is a, what I would call a very active dreamer. Um, she not only uh, has very vivid dreams, not only remembers them, oftentimes wants to tell me about them uh, in the morning, uh, but also she tends to live, live them out in some form in her sleep as well. Uh, and so she, uh, if it's a dream where she's running or kicking or punching, uh, it, it, it takes form. And sometimes I wake up with uh, inadvertent bruises uh, on my body because of her active dream style. Uh, and it doesn't just physically play out. It actually verbally plays out as well. She'll oftentimes have whole conversations talking through her dreams. In fact, kind of a fun, cute story. Our very first, I'll call it a fight, argument, our very first argument as a married couple um, happened while she was asleep. And we were, it was a very stressful time. We were newlyweds. Uh, she was trying to move into her classroom uh, to be a first-time teacher. And she had gotten to sleep before me. And she came out to the doorway and she was just livid. And she was so upset with me. And I was trying to ask her, why are you upset? And she's like, I'm so upset that you won't let me go set up my classroom at school. Uh, and I was like, I'm not stopping you from doing that. This is what we're doing. We're going to do it together. And, and it kept going back and forth and it kept going on. And she kept making less and less sense. And finally, I kind of looked across the room closer at her in the dim light. And I was like, are you even awake? in which she didn't really have a reply, and I could tell she was still asleep, and so I just walked her back to bed and put her back to sleep. So not only did we have our first fight uh, in, while she was asleep, I also lost the fight, apparently, um, because there was nothing in my argument that could convince her otherwise. I just had to put her back to bed. Uh, but again, she's, she's a very active dreamer, uh, and a lot of even y'all may relate to this, and, that, and we're going to see this Nebuchadnezzar being very relatable here uh, in the fact that he's going to have this dream in a time uh, of a high stress, high um, pressure scenario. I don't know if, you, if you're a dreamer, if you find yourselves in those times when uh, maybe the dial's turned up a little bit on life, you've, you then tend to have more active dreams. This is the case for Nebuchadnezzar. And he also will be moved by his dreams uh, in, in a much more morose and, and dark way. So let's do this. Um, let's, in our normal fashion, let's uh, read through uh, the text as we're going to consider it as a whole this morning. Um, so if you have your Bibles, you can open them up or turn them on to Daniel chapter 2. I'm going to be reading out of the ESV version. Uh, and even for the sake of just to do it, uh, I'm going to invite you to stand uh, out of the reverency of uh, reading God's Word. So even in home, uh, you can take the uh, choice to stand. Uh, even if you can't stand or you don't choose to stand, ultimately we are all standing because it's the reminder to us, it's easier for us to uh, move our physical condition, yet we are all desperate for him to move us in our spiritual condition. So starting in verse 1 of chapter 2. In the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, 
Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His spirit was troubled and his sleep left him. Then the king commanded that the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dreams. So they came in and they stood before the king. And the king said to them, I had a dream, and my spirit is troubled to know the dream. Then the Chaldeans said to the king in Aramaic, and this is actually where the, uh, the original language switches from Hebrew to Aramaic. We're going to come back to that in a brief comment. But they say to him in Aramaic, and the text continues in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell your servant the dream, and we will show the interpretation. The king answered and said to the Chaldeans, The word for me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you shall be torn limb from limb, and your houses shall be laid in ruins. But if you show the dream and its interpretation, you shall receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. Therefore, show me the dream and its interpretation. They answered a second time and said, Let the king tell his servants the dream, and we will show its interpretation. The king answered and said, I, will, I know with certainty that you are trying to gain time, because you see that from me that the word is firm. If you do not make the dream known to me, there is but one sentence for you. You have agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me till, thing, till the times change. Therefore, tell me the dream, and I shall know that you can show me its interpretation. The Chaldeans answered the king and said, There's not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand. For no great and powerful king has asked such a thing of any magician, enchanter, or Chaldean. The things that the king asks is difficult, and no one can show it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with the flesh. Because of this, the king was very angry and very furious, and he commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be destroyed. So the decree went out. And the wise men were about to be killed, and they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. Then Daniel replied with prudence and discretion to Arioch, the captain of the king's guard, who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. He declared to Arioch, the king's captain, why is the decree of the king so urgent? Then Arioch made the, Arioch made the matter known to Daniel, and Daniel went in and requested to the king to appoint him a time that he might show the interpretation to the king. These are the very words of God. Hear them and you hear him. Amen. Y'all go ahead and be seated. Now, before we go into our typical kind of overview, uh, jumping back into the passage and trying to break it down kind of section by section to highlight some things, um, I do want to make mention that we're, we're really only covering uh, the first part of this narrative story. Uh, this is actually a four-part story, and we're only going to get through part one. We're really only considering uh, the very first part, which has to deal with Nebuchadnezzar's agitation. There's going to be four more parts that's going to come. Next week, we're going to talk about God's revelation, and then we'll see Daniel's interpretation. And then we'll finally, this chapter closes with Daniel's promotion. But as a narrative, this whole chapter from verses 1 through 49 is the story at, at the whole. And what we're only doing is we're only taking the first part of that. Now, we talked this week, Chris, John, and I, uh, and actually it was part of the thing that was mentioned for our podcast. Um, again, if you, don't, if you haven't been paying attention on Facebook or haven't seen yet, we actually uh, have started a midweek podcast that John's hosting called The In-Between. If you search for it on any uh, podcast delivery apps, you should be able to see it with this graphic. Uh, and, and in essence, what we're trying to do is, is to bring up some concepts of tying the week's last sermon into this sermon, maybe talking about some things that maybe we don't have uh, time to fully explain. 
But one of the things we talked about last week, and if you missed it, you can go back and listen, is we talked about the pitfalls of only considering a part of a narrative, of zooming down in. There's some advantageous things that we can get from that, but then there's also some dangers we have to avoid. Because when narratives, are essentially a collection of stories, are told, they're told just like we tell stories. They're all told to support or to buttress a main purpose or a theme or a thesis. And so Daniel clearly has a main theme to it. Now, the whole purpose of Daniel telling his whole stories is to point each and every story as a support to the fact that God is sovereign. Sovereign just being a fancy word for all-powerful. That God is in control. Um, we saw this in, in the very first uh, chapter, chapter 1. Even, we couldn't even get to verse 2 without this concept going. It said this in 1.1, In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord, verse 2, gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. Did Nebuchadnezzar have the power to take Jerusalem? Apparently not. The only power you had to take it is because God had a greater power to give it to him. And so we see God presented, even from the beginning, as a sovereign God who is in control of everything. And so all of these stories and all of this framework is, is here to support that main message. So we don't want to narrow down so much and look at the characters and interpret it in such a way that's outside of the context of its main purpose, which is God is sovereign. The lessons that we learn from these individuals has to fall underneath that umbrella. I said I was going to comment a little bit on language um, because, again, this is a, a, an unusual book in the Old Testament. Most, the vast majority of the Old Testament is written in, uh, in Hebrew and the New Testament is written in Greek. But there's sections of Aramaic that are, that are also uh, woven in there. And this is actually the largest section of Aramaic that we got. Um, and, and it actually adds to the fact that Daniel has beautifully uh, orchestrated and put together this book. Um, this is a beautiful work of literature um, telling these narrative stories. A lot of people divide, these, uh, divide this book into two parts, and I think it's a fine definition. I use it as well. They, they take the first six, the first half, uh, the first six chapters, and they call it uh, the narrative of Daniel. And then they take the seven through 12, the last half, and they call it the prophecy of Daniel. But others actually also split this book in like two parts, and they do so by the languages. Because again, it's divided in, in here from Hebrew and in Aramaic. We started off with one and then the beginning of two, all talking in Aramaic. And then from two, four, all the way through the end of seven, it's going to switch over and switch uh, from Hebrew into Aramaic. And then it'll pick back up in eight and finish the rest of the story um, in, in Hebrew once again. And so the question is why? Why would Daniel structure it this way? Some kind of just make the simple argument and say, well, this is when it was written. So Daniel wrote the Aramaic part, which was the common tongue of Babylon, the, the kingly um, tongue that was that all decrees were made in, um, that he wrote that part when he was under captivity and then much later in his life to the Jewish audience, he put that together with some Jewish bookends. Um, I, I actually agree more with the commentators that like to divide it this way because they want to highlight the purpose or again, the, the, the messages that are going out. Uh, essentially what they'll say is this middle section here um, is a message to almost an evangelic, uh, like a evangelism type message to the Babylonian people. And it's put in a bookend of a greater message that goes out to all of God's people, that the recipients of, the mess of this message is what dictates the language that's used there. That's just a very brief overlook. I do want to at least throw this up on the screen. This is uh, a slide from uh, the kind of conclusion of the Bible Project video. If uh, After this, or if you get a chance in the week, 
week, I encourage you to get on their website um, or look them up on YouTube and watch us. They do a fantastic job of showing how artistfully uh, Daniel has put together and crafted this letter. And then they as well make comments on the language. But for now, where we are is we're starting in chapter 2. We're starting with God as sovereign. Um, So let's go back and let's consider the king's dream here, back in verse 1. It says, in the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, so that just starts off again, we have a new story. Um, So we're getting introduced to the time frame and the context of the story. Um, We're not sure if this is the second year of his shared reign with his father, um, or if this is the second year of his solo reign after his father has died, um, Nebuchadnezzar and Nebuchadnezzar actually start a reign together. And then when his father dies, Nebuchadnezzar takes over in the entirety. Um, I don't think it matters too much either way. I tend to lend to the second of the choices because I think it uh, explains better for Daniel having completed his training and stepping up into his role as we left chapter one. Um, Also, I think it sets the stage again for these troubling dreams. So in the second year in the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. It's as simple as that. This is what this entire story is going to be about. It's going to be about Nebuchadnezzar and his dreams. Now, the the language here in English in the ESV says Nebuchadnezzar has dreams, um, which begs the question, well, how many dreams does he have? Because later we only run into one of them. Um, The language really isn't that particularly clear for us in the original text because it's either Nebuchadnezzar had dreams or it could be almost described as dreams had Nebuchadnezzar, meaning just Nebuchadnezzar was sleeping. So it was either that he had one dream over and over again, the same dream, or that it's just one night of sleeping, one dream, and this is what we're focusing on. But either way, what we should not miss is we shouldn't miss the effect of the dreams that it had on him. It says this back in one, because of these dreams, his spirit was troubled and sleep left him. Again, this makes sense. This is where it's relatable. Remember where Nebuchadnezzar is. He's in the second year of his solo reign. Essentially, him and his father had gone and conquered all these kingdoms. And then his father has died and left the task to Nebuchadnezzar by himself to now consolidate all these kingdoms into one power, one kingdom. And so in this high stress, high pressure role, moved up the ladder of power and responsibility very, very quickly. Now in this time, he's having this vivid dream. So again, for all of you who have vivid dreams during stressful times, you should relate to Nebuchadnezzar here. So let's continue on looking back at verse 2. Then the king commanded that the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dreams. So they came in and stood before the king, and the king said to them, I had a dream, and my spirit is troubled to know the dream. Again, we get a lot of repetition in this book, um, which is stylistically put there. But we know the effect of this dream on Nebuchadnezzar, and it is that his spirit is troubled. That's at least the way the ESV and the NIV and the NLT, a lot of major ones say the spirit is troubled. Um, If you're reading out of the King James Version or the Christian Standard Bible, you actually get that this is translated into some form of my spirit is anxious. But either way, troubled or anxious, I think both of them are are good terms for it, but they still lack probably a physicality to this. Literally, literally in the original language, this word, um, these words mean my breath is struck. We could say the wind is knocked out of me. Um, it's not just that I have this uneasy, anxious feeling, but I have a physical response. It's like my the air has been struck out of my body. I am, I am, I am knocked, uh, knocked over, the wind is gone from me. One of the writers put it like this. He said, Nebuchadnezzar here is experiencing a physical aspect to a spiritual pain. He has a physical emotive response to this 
this very spiritual problem and spiritual pain. So Nebuchadnezzar has a spirit problem. So you may ask, then, if you've got a problem with spirits, who are you going to call? Right? I hear it across the living rooms all across America. You're going to call Ghostbusters. You're going to call these guys, these four guys to come in. Uh, well, Nebuchadnezzar doesn't necessarily call Ghostbusters, but he does call a group of four. Um, these using some titles, he calls them the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans. These are the Ghostbusters in our story who are coming into the king's aid uh, to help him with his spirit problem. These are, are fine English translations. Really, again, a lot of the nuances are really hard in the original language to get to it. But these are roles. Um, these are probably uh, different. All, all of these are different factions or functions of uh, the wise men, the councils that would be coming there. Um, looking at their original kind of roots of where these words come from, we kind of get a little bit more. We have the chartum. Those are what is translated the magicians here. Uh, this comes from a word described for writing. Uh, these are the authors and the scribes. Uh, like if you were trying to think in modern terms, these would be like the expert bureaucrats who record the history of the kingdom. They're the ones who know what's moving and shaking. They're knowing what's happened in the past and where they're going to try to use their influence to guide where it needs to go forward. These are the writers. And then the enchanters, we have as a word, the ashafim. These are kind of the word whisperers. These are potentially necromancers and demon worshipers. This is not a very, very positive this is, or, or bright um, form of an enchanter. This is very, very dark. Um, these are probably, the, uh, in modern terms, the expert lobbyists seeking to influence their own will, their own religion. Um, they're trying to get involved in the policies using their necromancy skills and the demon worship as their aids. Um, then we have, they have the sorcerers. The sorcerers is real similar to our last word. It's the mechashimfim. These are what's translated, you know, again, the sorcerers. Most commonly, these would be the magicians, the ones who are doing magic. magic. Now, this isn't the magic of David Blaine or, or Harry Houdini. This is, this is dark magic. Um, these are the, the, the witchcraft ones. This is the same word that's actually used um, back um, in, in the Exodus times um, for the magicians who stand in Pharaoh's court and turn their staves into snakes. These are the magicians. And then lastly, we have the Chaldeans. This word coming from the Kassim, these are really what started as a term to describe a people group, modified over into the role. And this role is the astrologers. A lot of translations just call them that. They don't even call them the Chaldeans. They call them the astrologers. Um, nowadays, we would say this is the uh, New Age fanatics, the fanatical New Age, let's tie into the world and, and get all the, the right put together, really big into dreams. And of course, that's then why they're invited here. So these are the wise men. These are the ones who are invited to come. And so um, we see their response in verse 4. Looking down at verse 4, Then the Chaldeans, this whole group, said to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and we will show you the interpretation. This is not a bad start. If you're going to go into a grumpy king, uh, you might as well start off on a positive note. And so they have a great address here. O king, live forever. They've been summoned. They don't know what the problem is. And so they're trying to um, give warm wishes to the king and to his long life. Uh, I'm sure you, in, in any situation, you get called in at work where your boss calls you into the office and you don't know why you're there, that you walk in and you say, oh, boss, may you live forever. I'm sure that's a tag you wanted. I actually even tried responding to one of Chris's emails this week with that very tagline. 
Um, unfortunately, he just ignored me and just carried on with what was needed, made no comment. Uh, but again, what could it hurt? And this is exactly what the guys are thinking. What could it hurt? So we're going to go ahead and uh, start by saying this high praise. And then we're going to get down to why we're really here. Show us the interpretation. This is what they're about. They need to know the interpretation. This is the function of the group. Essentially, they were all trained as uh, well-trained in dream manuals. What they did is they, they were, they were very, this is a very Freudian thought. Um, Freud thought that uh, dreams could tell you the history of your past. Babylonians thought that dreams told you the history of the future. And so they had these dream manuals, and these were large books, um, even big tablets. We actually have some of the tablets. Here's one of the tablets of a Sumerian dream manual. And what this is full of is it's full of pictures and images and then trying to give historical representation of how that played out or possible meanings for why those dreams were seen or what those images meant. And so these, these Chaldeans, these wise men, they were these experts of this, these dream manuals. They would study them, they would pour over them, and then when a dream would be told to them, they would pull from the depths of all this knowledge of all these past dreams and symbols, and they would try to craft that together, um, uh, bolstered from those past ones to now present what this means going forward. And they'd hopefully do it in a way that was probably flattering or worked out well for the king who was paying them. So they got something as a good reward, not getting punishment or death. Um, this, is, this is their job. This is their, their goal. And so this is what they try. They say, great, let's go like we always do. Tell us first the dream. We'll then tell you the interpretation. But that's not what the king says. Essentially what the king says back to them is he says, I have some good news for you and I have some bad news. Let me start with the bad news. Verse 5. The king answered and said to the Chaldeans, the word from me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you shall be torn from limb, torn limb from limb, and your houses shall be laid in ruins. Wow. I mean, talk about waking up on the wrong side of the bed. This is not a happy king. If this is the carrot and the stick approach, this is a very, very big stick. I will tear you apart and I will make your house a ruin. Make your house a ruin is actually a very, very polite way of the translators to give this to us. Uh, the, the King James Version calls it a dunghill. Uh, essentially, it's not that it has all hit the fan, but that all of it has been scooped up and poured out to cover the entire house. This is not a pleasant uh, experience for the house of living to then now essentially become the outhouse. This is, this is an unrealistic request with an extreme consequence. Um, the king is very, very firm here, and this consequence is very, very risky for these Chaldeans to participate in. Uh, in my reading about this, I actually came across one guy who took this as an opportunity to make a joke about uh, us relating to it as husbands, knowing when a wife comes to you upset and you ask what's wrong, and she says, you should know what's wrong and should know how to fix it. Um, and I thought about making that joke, but then I didn't want to wake up with one of those another unintentional bruises tonight um, from my wife. So I, I figured we'll skip over that for now. But what this is, this is still is the threat. And then this threat is followed up then with a potential reward. This is the stick, but then next we have the carrot. Verse 6, but if you show the dream and its interpretation, you shall receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. Therefore, show me the dream and its interpretation. Essentially, what Nebuchadnezzar has done here is he's used the two things that he has used thus far to be successful. Now we'll see where it gets them, but here what he's trying to do is in the first part, he's trying to power his way out of it, and then in the last part, he's trying to purchase his way out of it. 
My guess is Nebuchadnezzar has put this formula into practice many times before and has always been successful, that either because of his threat of power or because of his uh, vast capacity to purchase or to give gifts, that he always got what he wanted. But here, what does it get him? Well, let's look down. Let's look at the Chaldeans' response, verse 7. Then they answered a second time and said, Let the king tell his servants the dream, and we will show its interpretation. They just repeat themselves. And the king answered and said, I know with certainty that you are trying to gain time. Again, gain time. This, was very, this should be very relatable for all of us, especially any of us who have kids, if we're parents. Almost every night when I put my children down to bed and I walk in and I kiss them and I tell them goodnight, uh, inevitably when I'm walking out the door and it's always either as I'm closing the door or right after I've closed the door, what happens? What comes out of the children's mouths? But daddy, I have a, and then another question, another, another comment. Oftentimes this is just restating the same thing they were telling me when I was putting them to bed. Because what are they doing? They're trying to gain time. They're trying to delay this bedtime. This is a very relatable thing. This is what the Chaldeans are doing. They're trying to gain time, except they're not trying to avoid bedtime. They're trying to avoid dead time. Because what comes up very next in verse eight is the king answered and said, I know with certainty that you're trying to gain time because you see the word from me is firm. If you do not make the dream known to me, there is but one sentence for you. You have agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me till the times change. Therefore, tell me the dream and I shall know that you can interpret it for me or show me its interpretation. And so it asks the question, why is Nebuchadnezzar so set and so firm on killing these individuals? I think there's a couple things. A lot of commentaries offer a couple possibilities. These aren't an exhaustive list. But one of them is that this is a sign to show how troubled he is. Remember, we talked about this wind knocked out of him. He's scrambling. He's really, really been put off by this. And so he's gone to the farthest end, and he is just lashing out in his frustration on anybody and everybody that had come to it. Unfortunately, this is a sad one that we see all the time um, with dads who are frustrated at work, who come home and verbally or even physically take it out on their kids or their wives, the innocent ones. And this is even, even for some, even at work, who, who in their frustration with their work um, seek to even put to end or, or in a way, a weird way, um, lower down coworkers or put them to their own demise so that they can be um, lifted up in their, and saved in their own skin. A lot of people point to the fact that this is just Nebuchadnezzar lashing out in poor character. Another, another popular one is that this is a sign to show how paranoid he is, uh, to show his paranoia. Um, that essentially, we know later when we run into the dream, uh, the dream is going to be a motif that explains how Babylon eventually will crumble. crumble. Nebuchadnezzar is eventually going to lose his power to another kingdom. Um, and so a lot of times the way that would happen would be assassins. And those assassins would come oftentimes from an inside court. And so maybe this is he's so paranoid about this dream of somebody coming to get him and, and assassinate him so another kingdom can come that he calls together his closest guys, all the wise men. And he's going to either use them to get him out of it or he's going to kill all of them in case they're one of the assassins. Maybe it is that he's paranoid. Or lastly, a lot of commentators point to, and I like this one, just a sign of how practical he is. 
Um, that Nebuchadnezzar is just a practical man. This is what um, this is something that we've seen uh, already as we uh, looked at chapter one. We'll see it again throughout this book. Um, there's there's a trait of Babylon um, that they exercise, essentially trying to take all the good from what they conquer uh, and they absorb it in. And if anything works and it's doing well, then they pull it into the Babylonian religion and practices. Uh, and if it doesn't work, they just put it underfoot. And so it may just be that uh, Nebuchadnezzar is saying, I need this one thing from you guys. And if you can't give it to me, then why do I have you guys around? You're no longer practical for me. And so I'll put you underfoot. Either way, whatever the response, and it could be a mixture of all of these, what we do see is we see the wise men responding with what I call the wise men's wise-ish response. There's some wisdom here, but it's not, it's not in the face value in which they present it. Looking back down at verse 10, the Chaldeans answered the king and said, there is not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand for no great and powerful king has asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. The thing that the king asks is difficult and no one can show it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. Did you hear it? Did you hear it in that last statement? It's like they're, they're, they're hinting on this. They're admitting either, either their own weakness or their own uh, inability to do this, but they're attributing that the only person can do this is the gods. Now, they're referring to little g gods, not capital G God. If they referred to the capital G God, the God Yahweh, the God of Israel, they would have nailed it right on the head. Because we know in Genesis 48 with Joseph and the two prisoners, when the, when the prisoners said to him, we have dreams and there's no one to interpret them, uh, Joseph says to them, do not interpretations belong to God? Please tell them to me. Joseph knows and has, met, has pointed clear to us that interpretation of dreams belongs to God. God is the only one who has the power to do this. And so the Chaldeans are getting really close. They just also think it's the gods, plural, little g, gods. But their second statement is just an outright mistake. No one can show it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. I mean, this should hearken us right back to our study of the book of John, right? In the very first chapter, John 1, 1, we get that in the beginning, the word was God and the word, uh, in the beginning was the word and the word was God. And then in verse 14, it said, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. I mean, this is exactly the case here uh, that this is hearkening. This is hearkening that there is a God who has all power and is sovereign. And that God is not distanced from us, but in fact, he chose to come and dwell in his flesh among us. I think this is our first application right here is that when Nebuchadnezzar, when threatened with his own demise, seeks to kill all of these wise men, a mere 600 years later, we'll run into another egocentric, narcissistic leader named Herod who will also seek to kill all of the babies when he is threatened. But the wise men in this story also don't give the king that Herod what he wants, but instead they go to worship a baby prophesied to be the savior. I would ask you the question of this. Do you relate to Nebuchadnezzar today in your spiritual condition? When you stop and look at yourself, do you have a troubled spirit? Is it something that speaks to you knowing that all that you can purchase, all the power that you have won't buy you fulfillment in a spiritual sense in this life? The way I wrote it like this is if you find yourself at the end of your frustrations like Nebuchadnezzar and his futility, 
It might be because you've never recognized God in his sovereignty. Your solution is found in the one who became flesh, the one who chose to take his life and give it over at the cross, and the one who is shown to have the power to do that in God raising him on the third day, who is offering life to you this morning. I would ask it as this. If you find yourself in the same spiritual troubling turmoil that Nebuchadnezzar is in because you've never recognized God as Savior, I would say today could be the day of salvation. Look to Jesus, confess your sins, and accept the life he wants to give you. And if the motivation isn't enough to learn from Nebuchadnezzar as a poor example, then we get introduced to the one uh, we get to see a shining example from, and this is Daniel. Let's continue in our story, verse 12. But because of this, the king was angry and very furious and commanded all the wise men of Babylon be destroyed. So the decree went out and the wise men were about to be killed, and they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. Some think that because of this language that the, the wise men are actively being killed in this moment and now they're just getting along to Daniel. Um, I kind of lend to the ones that kind of think they're just all being gathered up. Because again, if a king is going to put together um, uh, a, a killing a group this significant, I bet he's going to make a performance out of it. And so he's probably gathering them all together for some kind of public or mass killing uh, to, prop, to prop himself up um, because he's the one who has the insecurities here looking and is troubled. But either way, in the midst of this, Daniel's response comes in verse 14. Then Daniel replied with prudence and discretion to Arioch. I want you to listen. Think back to the harshness and the chaoticness of what we read in Nebuchadnezzar's response. Now think about Daniel's response and listen to how calm it is. Listen to how controlled it is. Immediately following this rage monster Nebuchadnezzar on his, on his killing spree, then comes Daniel, who replies with prudence and discretion he asked the, the king's captain, why is the decree of the king so urgent? Then Arioch made the matter known to Daniel, and Daniel went in and requested the king to appoint him a time that he might show, him the, or might show the interpretation to him. Again, Daniel here is extremely calm, collective, cool. Um, this, this word, who, these words, prudence and discretion, your Bible's other translations might say, um, uh, that is wise counsel and tact that Daniel is using this. This word tact actually more um, literally means taste, to have good taste. This is a drastically different picture than our troubled king. Daniel is coming, coming to this, not necessarily knowing what the outcome is, but at least knowing what to do. He keeps his cool and he takes the next step and he makes an appointment. He doesn't lash out. He doesn't crumble in fear. Instead, he just does what he knows to do, which is to follow in God's will, to trust God as sovereign. And then he sets this appointment for the king so that he can show him the interpretation before he actually goes to God and asks for the interpretation. I'm sure Chris will pick up on that in next week. So let's close with these last thoughts. Here in this passage, this narrative story, we get this stark difference between one who is living according to God as sovereign and one who does not know that truth. And I think this is important. I mean, such an important timing uh, in, in, the, in, our, in the events going around COVID uh, and the coronavirus that is just helpful for us today. As we can ask ourselves, are we responding to this calamity as ones who are troubled because we don't know how the season's going to go out? Or are we engaging those who are around us with wisdom and tact and patience, pointing them to a God who is in control? 
Can we say in the face of these times what Timothy said in the very words of what our county judge closed with when he made his last address? 2 Timothy 1, 7, For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Can we be marked by those who trust God in his sovereignty? Let's reflect on these things as we close in worship again. Patrick.